Well, we have arrived at one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. And some of you are singing the children's song in your head right now, Who Built the Ark? Noah, Noah, Who Built the Ark? That's all you get from me, by the way. It's such a popular story that I think every children's Bible that we had read, uh, that we read to our children had this story in it, if not even made the front cover. And out of curiosity, I did a wide-ranging search to see just how many different kinds of products are out there for Noah's Ark. I found countless books, puzzles, blankets, toys, ceramics, or ornaments, paintings. For $25, I found a pair of old house slippers on eBay with Noah's Ark on them. Please don't outbid me on them. My wife's birthday is this week. For only 20 bucks, though, I found a shirt with an ark on it, and on the top it said, need an ark, and on the bottom it said, I know a guy, what else do you expect? <laughs> and outside the world of products, the flood story is well known throughout the world. Our Muslim neighbors and friends consider Noah to be a prophet. Our Hindu neighbors have a story, uh, a version of Noah's story in their traditions, Ancient Near East cultures like the Babylonians have stories about a man on a boat surviving a cataclysmic flood. But for as well known as Noah's story is, it's curious to see that in Holy Scripture, God's Word, it is directly linked to the least familiar and perhaps most obscure passage in all of the Bible. And it's really not a children's story in the way that we typically think about it. Chapter 6, verse 1 begins in this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, to understand this, we're going to have to take a step back. Remember some of the evil that we've seen so far in Genesis, starting with Adam and Eve in chapter 3. They were made in the likeness of God, and then they greedily grasped at the fruit to be like God, and they broke God's command, and they violated His good boundaries. Then in chapter 4, Cain crosses the boundaries even further. He actually kills the image of God found in his brother, and Abel's innocent blood is spilt on the earth. And now in chapter 6, we get these sons of God, these heavenly beings, violating God's boundaries yet again, even further. Just as God gave humans responsibility to represent His gracious role on earth, the sons of God were created to enact God's rule in the spiritual realm. Now, maybe you're thinking this sounds like a weird Old Testament thing, but in the New Testament, we read of rulers, powers, and principalities in the heavenly realm like we do in Paul's writings. In short, the biblical view is that there are powers at work in the world that are greater than just individuals or groups. And sometimes these, power, these powers enact some very bad things. Think of some of the greatest forces of evil that have overtaken our world. Think of things like terrorism, 
racism, sexism, Nazism, anarchism, nationalism. These movements and ideologies are so strong, are so enduring, are so powerful that they don't just take hold of individuals, but generations. And they outlive the individuals who are proponents of these views. And in part, the biblical answer to that is, is because there are spiritual realities behind them. Now, to address them on a human level, we have laws, policies, campaigns, education programs. In some cases, nations even go to war to put an end to them. But ultimately, as Christians, we believe that the only solution is Christ's rule over them. And Peter reminded us of this truth earlier. He writes, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. So the sons of God in the heavens, together with humans on earth, were to serve God's goodwill. And that was so in the beginning. But now in Genesis 6, things have changed dramatically. These heavenly beings, through their power and their lust, harm the women of the earth. And the sons of God were to use their status and roles to represent God's character. And instead, like fallen humans, they abuse their powers, they assert their responsibilities, they destroy the lives of people. One scholar put it this way about the sons of God. We now have the presence of the divine on earth in a form that utterly misrepresents God through its exercise of royal violence and despotic authority over other humans. So here's the big picture in Genesis 6. The entire created order is being undone. Both the heavenly realm and the earthly realm are corrupted from head to toe, and God in His judgment will finish undoing what is already being undone. You know, there are things in life that when we let them go on, they get worse and worse, not better. We keep telling ourselves it will get better, but someday, somehow that day never actually comes. Maybe you've been there before, with a business plan that isn't working, with a car you keep dumping money into, with an abusive relationship you keep returning to. For the sake of a new beginning, some things must come to an end, because if not, things are going to go from bad to worse. And that's what's going on in the days of Noah. Now, the first thing we want to take note of is God's assessments of His creation. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. When I've read this verse before to people, I'll ask them, do you believe this about human nature? And sometimes people will take a moment, they'll think about it, and they'll say, you know, as hard as it is to hear that, I really do believe that. 
when I think about my ex or when I hear about those people on TV, I can really see how that's true. No, no. What this is saying is that after the fall, all humans by nature are as far away from God's path as they could possibly be. And that includes the human author of this verse. This is true about our worst enemies, and it's true about us. Everyone is included in this statement. No one is excluded. But we also have to keep in mind that because all humans are made in God's image, they still have a moral conscience. That means by God's grace that humans are not as bad as they could be all the time. But in the days of Noah, evil was working overtime, and God had to put it to rest. In fact, Noah's name means rest. So, because humanity broke its covenant with God, God would give creation a new beginning through Noah. The way this story often gets retold is that the world was bad, and God got really mad, and then God, really angry, just destroyed the world. But that's not how this story is told in the book of Genesis. In verse 6 we read, And the Lord regretted that He made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the writer not only knows the extent of human wickedness, he knows how much God's heart is aching at what is going on in the world. It's important to note that God is grieved. It's not that he's testy or bad-tempered when he judges the world. God does not retaliate impulsively. His judgment is based on reason. So why was God so grieved? Well, the days of Noah were corrupt, and Psalm 14.1 actually gives us a good description of what the days of Noah must have been like. The psalm writer says there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable things. There is none who does good. In other words, crime was high, trustworthiness of leaders was low, harm and disregard of the poor was rampant, even if people did do good things, it was for dishonest gain. That's what it was like in the days of Noah. If people worshiped God, it was for their self-interest rather than for his own glory. If people knew God's commands, they ignored them. But ultimately, there was none who sought after God. There was none who understood. There was none who was righteous. The days were dark. And God's creation went from good to bad to worse. So then what a contrast with what we get with Noah. And God's assessment of Noah is so remarkable. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, if in Psalm 14... If Psalm 14 gave, gave us a description of what the days of Noah was like, then Psalm 15 gives us a good description of what Noah himself was like. The righteous person in Psalm 15, God tells us, walks blamelessly. They do what is right and speak truth in their hearts. 
In every aspect of Noah's life, he lived like God was on the receiving end of his actions. We can picture maybe what Noah's day-to-day life was like. At home, Noah loved and honored his wife. He not only sacrificed for his children, but he was present to them. He raised them to love God. Noah, because he was righteous, when he was out in the community, when he shook on a business deal, he kept his word and even went over and above what was required. Others would misrepresent the truth, but Noah always spoke the truth, and he did so in love. And when he failed, he confessed his sins. He looked for opportunities to do good to his neighbors, not reluctantly, but wholeheartedly. Those who were struggling, those who were hard to love and often overlooked, Noah didn't ignore them. He sought them out. Why? Because like God, he loved to show mercy. In our visits with our brothers in Christ at the county jail, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in chapter 3, Paul encourages the Philippian church to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And it reminds me how Noah must have lived in his days. And when we speak to the brothers there, we encourage them that though they feel that they are in a dark and hopeless place, that they constantly have to watch their backs, and they are worried about their futures, regardless of why they are there, Jesus Christ has broken the chains of sin for them, and He has chosen them to be the light right where they are. Through them, in that dark place, Jesus Christ's life will shine through. And Noah was that light in the midst of a dark and crooked and twisted generation. Now that call that God extended to Noah extends to every generation because you and I, right where God has us, regardless of our past, no matter our personality and quirks, God calls us to live blameless lives in the midst of this generation. To live blamelessly means that our inner life and our outer life match up with each other and reflect God's character. God calls us to live righteous lives. That is, we are to live out our callings as students, as parents, as workers, as family members, and as friends, with the knowledge that Jesus Christ himself calls us each day to the tasks he has put in front of us, and that he, and it's as if he is on the receiving end of our actions. That's how we are called to live. In short, we are called to walk with God, just as Noah did. But that's easier said than done. But Genesis unwraps the mystery of how Noah did it. Back up at verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This phrase, to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, is the Old Testament phrase that describes the indispensable New Testament word, grace. To find favor in God's eyes is to be the recipient of 
God's grace. You see, the grace of God for Noah was not like an unopened package left in the rain outside his doorstep. When God's grace arrived, he brought it into the home of his heart and he opened it up with the light and he cherished God's goodness to him. He didn't neglect it. He didn't return it. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he carried with him the joyous knowledge that God has shown him favor. Why was God going to judge humans in the flood? Why was he going to blot them out in his judgment? Because they lost sight of God. Yes, God blots out evil in his justice, but he also blots out sin in his mercy. Humans left the grace of God at the door. And they lived as if God never sent it in the first place. They just lived for themselves. Second Peter 2 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He tried to warn the people, there's a life-saving package here for you. And they wouldn't take it. He tried to bring it into them, but they just pushed it away. Why would, why would anyone refuse a life-saving delivery. Why does anyone refuse the grace of God when it is made known to them? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Well, first we've discovered God's assessment of his creation in Noah. Now in turn we see humanity's assessment of Noah and God. They reject the message of repentance. They reject the messenger Noah. And ultimately they reject the author of the message, God. You'll remember back in Genesis 1, God told the earth to be fruitful and to multiply. Now by Genesis 6, we see that they actually multiply what? They multiply evil. And God will judge the violent earth now and cleanse it of its sin. Noah and his family will be saved from the judgment. And in the rest of Genesis 6, we see how God goes about that. Noah, like he had always done in life, obeyed God. We see that Noah constructed the ark in the exact manner God had commanded him. And the living creatures, just like they did in Genesis 1, obeyed God too. Male and female, clean and unclean animals entering in, each in the way that God had commanded. The littlest sparrow and the smallest grain were not forgotten in God's plan to redeem the world. And chapter 6 concludes in this way. Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Now when you hear about the dimensions of the ark, it's roughly the length and a half, a length and a half of a football field and the height of a four-story house. And some of you are thinking... God commanded Noah to do a whole lot of things there. How in the world did he actually do it all? But that's not what Genesis wants us to see about Noah. It's that Noah obeyed God counterculturally. There was no one around Noah and his family living in the way that they did. They were obedient 
to God and to God alone. The institutions in their communities, the people they rubbed elbows with in the community or, their, or the people that they knew that lived around them, the wider cultural mindset, all of that was swimming in the opposite stream. And yet, they walked with God. That's what we are to see here. There's a saying from one of the early desert fathers that goes like this. There's a story of a younger monk who went to go see an older, wiser monk. The wiser monk was named Abba Macarius, and he was known to be a very wise person about the spiritual life. So the younger monk went to go see him. And the younger monk asked Abba Macarius, Give me a word that I may continue on the way of salvation. And Abba Macarius said to him, Go to the graveyard this evening and curse the dead. Throw stones at the tombstones and heap abuses on the dead. So the younger monk did as he was told. And the next day he went to Abba Macarius and he asked, and Abba Macarius asked him, What did the dead say to you when you went to the graveyard yesterday? And the younger monk said, the dead said nothing. Then Abba Macarius said to him, go again to the graveyard tonight, but this time he praises and compliments upon the dead. So the younger monk went to the graveyard and he praised the dead. He gave them compliments. He called them saints and stars alike. And the next day he returned back to Abba Macarius and he asked them, what did the dead say? And the younger monk said, the dead said nothing. And Abba Macarius said to the younger monk, if you are to continue on the path of salvation, you too must be deaf to the insults and praises of men. God said to Noah in Genesis 6, I will establish my covenant with you. Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You see, the course of Noah's life wasn't swayed by popular opinion or the criticisms of the world. God made a unilateral, unconditional, eternal promise with no take-backs, and that was Noah's life best. He hung on to God's Word above everything else. It was the promise of God that fueled Noah's obedience over the years in building the ark. It was the promise of God that allowed him to be undeterred when the praises or insults of men would steer him away. That's what kept Noah faithful. And I'm wondering this morning, what are the words that you hear from others that discourage you to do all that God commanded? that make you lose sight of God's promises to you? What are those words that you allow in to get close to your heart? In the end, as we see from the story, it's only God's Word to you. It's only God's Word about you. It's only God's Word for you in the gospel that will bring you to safe harbor. The judgments of others are dead words. Their praises are short-lived but God's promise lasts for all eternity. And it was that promise that saved Noah and his family while the world fell under judgments. We have a wonderful promise in the prophet Isaiah that goes like this, when you pass through the waters, 
I will be with you. Noah was the first to experience the fulfillment of that promise. How did God fulfill this promise to Noah? Noah built the ark and went into it just as God commanded, and God shut the door. And when the flood waters burst, Noah and his family were firmly secure in the ark when the flood waters cleansed the earth. And in fact, the only way that any of us will be saved from God's judgment is if we too are saved in an ark. Because as we heard in 1 Peter today, Christian baptism, which you're going to see in just a few moments, is a retelling of the story of Noah and the flood. Baptism by immersion is a picture of God's judgment against sin. Like in the days of Noah, there must be a holy cleansing to stand before a holy God. And when a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have, in a sense, entered into the ark like Noah and his family, and they are saved in Christ. And when they go down into the waters, and when they rise up again, it is a sign that in Christ's death, the old has been washed away, and in the resurrection, the new has come. Like with the ark, only in Jesus can we pass through death to life unscathed against God's judgment against sin. What a great comfort that is. Some of you have important decisions to make in the months ahead. What will you do? Where will you live? What relationships will you develop? Will you move up in your company? Or will you stay where you are? These are important decisions to think about and to pray about. But Christian baptism reminds us that to be in Christ, to remain in Him, is the only secure place for the future. Our decisions may be wise. Our decisions may be unwise. They may go far or they may yield minimal results. But being in Christ is the only secure place that upholds us through God's righteous judgment against the world. As Christians, we don't live or die by the world's judgment, but in Christ we have passed through the very judgment of God, and we have been declared righteous in God, in Jesus Christ, right now and for eternity. And that is something that the world's praises can never give us, and that is something that the world's insults can never take away from us. And as we enter into this holiday week with all the challenges that you may face, may may you keep that promise in mind, and may you rejoice in that with great thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came down from heaven so that we might be saved in you. We thank you that in your love and in your mercy, you have saved us from God's just judgment against sin and that you have cleansed us anew in you. Thank you that this promise is true for everyone who believes it. 
Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is just, but you're also a God who abounds in grace, and you love to show it to us. So, Lord, strengthen each person here this week. Help them to know, help them to rejoice with great thanksgiving that you have done this for them. In Jesus' name, amen.